You're listening to Review and Preview on Facebook Live. We cut the music and we finally got this to work, folks. We apologize for the delay tonight. We were having technical difficulties where Kyle couldn't hear me. Kyle, just reassuring, you can hear me, right? I could hear you loud and clear. Perfect. Awesome stuff. Folks, we really do apologize for the 15-minute delay. My name is Tom Scavetta. Join alongside Kyle Russo here on Review and Preview. I really quickly want to shout out James Montefusco backstage, who's taking a little hiatus but still working hard backstage to get this technical glitch fixed out. Thank you so much, James. We really do appreciate it. Uh, Make sure to follow us on all social media platforms below on our Facebook page at Review and Preview Sports. Follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and our YouTube channel at Review and Preview Sports. Got a lot of good stuff there. And uh, we got Kevin Fitz from JDF Sports in the comments section. What's up, Kevin? How's it going? The Kyle Russo show. The sky is everywhere. Yeah. This love it. Unofficially, yes. Unofficially, yes. Um, <laughs> make sure to go check out Kevin Fitzmorris on JDF Sports. Make sure to go check out all of their shows. Kevin hosted an episode last night called The Fitz Lounge. If you haven't checked that out, make sure to go check that out. They're going live tonight, I believe around 9 p.m. Eastern. Uh, puck off with Dylan James and Chris Nosek. You're going to want to check that out on JDF Sports. So before you check out us, make sure to go check out JDF Sports. They're also doing um, a lot of good things over there, so really appreciate it. And James backstage, thank you very much for that comment. Um, Yeah, so we're going to talk about an immense amount of topics tonight. We're going to cover the Mets, the end of this Mets game live. We're going to talk about the Yankees. We're going to go over the Rangers-Islanders series that happened over the weekend. They played Friday and Sunday. We're going to talk about the retirement of Julian Edelman, and we have a surprise. We are going to cover a two-round mock draft for both the Jets and the Giants to wrap up our show, so you're going to want to stay tuned. Um, So, yeah, really do appreciate it, folks, and uh, Kevin, appreciate all the love. Uh, Anytime, anytime. Um, So, Kyle, let's get into the thick of things now that we finally have our uh, live stream up. The Mets seem to be off to a typical Mets fashion start. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, the Mets, of course, their starters are getting hurt already. I know uh, Dylan Batantis had an injury. He's on the IL, did not take him long. And our starting third baseman, J.D. Davis, was placed on the injured list Saturday with a left knee injury. So we were forced to recall infielder Jose Parasa to replace him, and the Mets are currently 2-3. and three. Now, granted... We didn't have much luck with the COVID uh, opening weekend series with the Nationals. That didn't happen. We had a rain delay on Sunday that ended up being a postponement 
for Marcus Stroman. And then we were rained out yesterday. So we have a doubleheader going on tonight. But, Kyle, the Mets have been a circus over the first six days of the season. Yeah, that that's the nice way to put it in terms. It's it, it's been terrible. You know, we I really thought, and I was a strong advocate for it. And Tom, uh, I think between myself, you, and James, I even predicted that the Mets would come out victorious at the end of the season, having more wins than any of you guys predicted. I thought that's the start that they would kind of get off to on a on a nice new aura, new presence, uh, new obviously new owner, and, and a new mindset of this winning culture, and it. To be quite honest with you, I think this might have been some of the most circus stuff that I think I've ever seen from the Mets, uh, especially over the course of the last four or five years where, where you allude to the circus play. I mean, obviously, you're a Mets fan, so you know more than I do, but I can't. Th- this is probably one of the more memorable, you know, bad, weird starts by the Mets that I could think of as of recent. You know, as bad as the Mets have been over the years, they generally get off to really good starts. They almost always win on opening day. It's a rarity that they lose. They did that this year, but I guarantee you if they played the Nationals, they would have won on opening day. Um, That screwed them over a little bit. I think they just got off to a bad start. I don't think this is going to necessarily define their season, but it has been a circus. And right now, one of our very own, Paul Lombardi, is attending this doubleheader at City Field. Um, and you know, he's pretty much has that same mindset. The Mets have been a circus. They're two and three. They had a two nothing lead in this game today to the Phillies. They're currently tied three to three in the bottom of the eighth inning. They pulled Taiwan Walker after 80 pitches, eight strikeouts through four and a third. And of course the bullpen gives up three runs in, uh, two runs in relief. So this is a classic New York Metropolitans game. Uh, But let's go back to Sunday for a quick second. The game against Miami. I want to talk about that. The game started. I was up in Rockland. I wasn't down in Queens, but it was pouring. It was pouring where I was. And it was pouring and flushing as well. The game ended up being suspended after seven minutes due to rain. And, of course, that game will be resumed on the final day of August, August 31st. So the Mets would end up splitting the series with the Marlins uh, one-to-one. But... Then we, we also got rained out on Monday. But, Kyle, talk about Marcus Stroman. I know he's pitching the nightcap of tonight's doubleheader, but he had some harsh words for the Mets organization, throwing him out there. Uh, he wasn't he wasn't too happy about it. And quite frankly, you know, I get it. You're a baseball player. A lot of people want to be in your shoes. A lot of people want to be out there on the mound that can't do that. But I can't necessarily blame him that much. No, I don't really blame him that much either. The The reason why, obviously, you know, when people have, you know, words against what he said is that you're wearing a Mets uniform. Any diss that you throw at the Mets is is a diss to yourself because no matter what you say or no matter what you do, you play for that organization. Yep. And not only do you play for that organization, but we're in week one, week two of the season. So you have to get out there at least probably another 30 so odd times and put on that uniform at the end of the day. So no matter what hateful comments you put their way, you're representing them. It's a double negative, and it's in a bad position because, again, Tom, this wasn't a mess-up by the MLB. This is a mess-up by the Mets organization. That's why it looks bad, and when you're attacking your own organization, you're attacking yourself, basically. Do I blame him for getting angry? Absolutely not, because ultimately what happens is you took away a start from Marcus Stroman, and you put him in a bad situation, whereas – 
if you played him in tonight's game, right, would the outcome have been different? And obviously, you know, Tom, in doubleheaders as well. I know as a Yankee fan, it happened a lot last season. When they got put in doubleheaders, that's where they'd lose a lot of their games because that's when players tend to get injured. And it's just a, it's a bad situation right now. Do I agree with Marcus Stroman from a human standpoint? Absolutely, because I turned on the game and they're zoomed in around the shortstop area, second base, and Francisco Lindor is standing in front of a puddle. That alone, that alone should have said, okay, yeah, we probably shouldn't play this game. We probably should. We should, probably shouldn't have people out there right now. Now you're having a guy in Marcus Stroman who's pretty key to any success in, in which you have for the first half of the season, considering that your starting rotation is not there yet. Carrasco's not there. Syndergaard is not there. And DeGrom will get in that a little bit. But my, go- my goodness, they can't win when he's out there. They don't take advantage of the starts. So he's really your key factor at that second pitching spot. And, and he's going to get hurt. He's going to get hurt. So I don't blame him. I was never the biggest fan of this acquisition. I'll be quite honest. Our rotation was a mess last year, so it it really sucked that he opted out. But, you know, so far this year, I mean, he looked good in his first start. He's 1-0. He's going up against Aaron Nola tonight, you know, the Phillies ace. I don't necessarily agree with him from, um, you know, a, a fan standpoint. Like, Yeah, it looks bad. I mean, you took a shot at your own team. It looks bad on the Mets too, but... It is what it is, and in my opinion, Jacob DeGrom would have never opened his mouth about this. Yes, the Mets messed up, but you didn't make it look any better on yourself by opening your mouth. People want to see you play baseball, and that's what a guy like Jacob DeGrom does, and that's why he's considered a leader in that locker room. If Marcus Stroman wants to get to that level, he should take a page out of uh, the DeGrominator's book, in my opinion, but... Um, nevertheless, the Mets have won by a final score of four to three, according to James Montefusco. Uh, that is not official. Um, according yeah, to Mets.com, it is final. Okay. It's final. Uh, do we know what the, um, what the end result was trying to pull it up here? Uh, let's see. Well, Trevor may got the win. And the win. it looks and like scored. we were down three to two. Yeah, you were down three to two in the bottom of the eighth. Uh, Alonzo singled to left center. Francisco Lindor scored. And then Jonathan Villar singled to left center. Jeff McNeil scored. And uh, Michael Conforto to third. James McCann to second. So the game ended on that hit by Jonathan Villar. And that's big because the Phillies have gotten off to a hot start. Um. You know, they're one of the better teams in the NL East right now um, as of the first week. And it's great to see Villar, a utility guy that the Mets brought in. And that game lasted three hours long. So I feel like that's, you know, that's a long game, especially now you have to take a 30-minute break, at least get prepared for the next game. And now I think the rule this year with doubleheaders is the second game is only seven innings. So, right? It's weird. Yeah. It's, it's weird. I don't necessarily, I don't necessarily like it, but hey, it is what it is. Baseball, yep. No, but um, back. I, I want to backtrack a little bit. Earlier in this game, Dom Smith hit a two-run home run, bottom of the first inning. He seems to be the only source of offense that the Mets are getting right now, which is not uh, by a surprise. Um, you know, Taiwan Walker was good. The bullpen blew the lead, but the offense came in clutch. We can't continue to win games like that, though, right? It's more often than not the Mets have held a lead 
and blown it late. That's where majority of our losses come from over these yeah. last, I'm going to go ahead and say five seasons dating back to the world series team. It's sad. Yeah. Not just that, but it's, it's a matter of you won a game without having that extra inning in play. Right. And yeah. that also plays a huge factor. And, you know, I'm not going to say you guys came away with a, you know, not, uh, uh, I want to say a complicated win, but you guys got the win. That's a win in the win column. And that's, you know, what you guys had to stand for in competing for the, uh, and at least, but right now the Mets are in a situation where they need to, I feel like they need to get their feet back underneath them. They have had such a hectic and crazy start to the season. Like you said, Tom, having your first series canceled because the nationals, a uh, couple players had COVID uh, the rain start now playing an eight inning game tonight, uh, not taking advantage of the Jacob DeGrom starts the Michael Conforto, Strike standing over the plate when it's it's coming a lot of complication and hecticness by the Mets in the beginning yeah. of the season so far. That it has, that it has. But nightcap of the doubleheader will be starting shortly. Marcus Stroman taking on Aaron Nola. The Mets have a chance to go above 500 for the first time this season. They are currently three and three on the year. Now let's talk about this next topic for the Mets. Jacob DeGrom has been very dominant through his first two starts, but holds a losing record. He was the losing pitcher on Saturday. He went eight innings pitched. Not many starters can go eight innings. Oh, it gets better. He gave up one run on three hits, five hits, pardon me, with 14 strikeouts. Eight innings pitched, 14 strikeouts. Does that garner a loss from an outsider looking in? Should that be a loss? Any pitcher that does that, that should not be a loss. This team has not progressed since 2018, not one bit. I understand we're six, seven games into the season, but I'm going to be a little hard on this team. I'm going to be a little rational. You want to hit for your ace. You want to do – if the Mets hit for their ace, they'd win 100 games every year. I rest my case. I just – I feel so bad for him. I really do. I know we were talking about the – I don't want to say the lack of vocalness, but in a sense calling out your team. You know, that can be taken as a negative and that can be taken as a positive. I see it as a positive in the sense that, hey, you know what? This is the greatest pitcher that probably I, I'm going to say that I, I've had the ability to watch in my tenure of baseball. You know, I really started watching when I was 11 or 12 years old. So Clayton Kershaw was kind of that guy. But now it's developed Jacob DeGrom has been that guy because he's been in Cy Young competitions the last four or five years and obviously came away with the back-to-back two or three years ago. And is still competing for it as well as the MVP award. This guy is the most dominant pitcher in baseball. And the fact that he had, he hasn't had a season with more than 15 wins. He He's won Cy Young's with only 10 wins. And it's because the team that they've put in front of him. I, I, I could not believe, Tom, one run and two starts and, and both of them. He doesn't have one win yet. He doesn't have one win yet because he gets zero run support. He's a man with a 70-win record and 52 losses can you imagine if the team stopped blowing saves can you imagine if the team actually gave him more than one run per game when he starts and it's i don't even know what you do at that point because we could say you got to hit for your ace you got to hit for your ace this has been the stigma with this team the last three four years they know this it's not a matter of pressure it's a matter of actually executing and this team cannot execute for whatever reason it is people want to blame management people want to blame the team on the field but i'll tell you this this is the best team that I think that the Mets have had on paper since that 2015 team. 
So it has nothing to do with the players. I don't think it's Luis Rojas. People look to blame him. This is just actually executing on what you have. Because the fact that you're pulling one run, and forget about the one run, one run against the Marlins, right? The Marlins aren't the best of baseball teams, but one run against the Marlins in a Jacob deGrom start in which he absolutely leaves them hitless. One hit, one home run. That's it. And you can't give your team anything. I mean, that's just embarrassing. Well, Chris says, I blame the first loss on the manager for pulling the Grom after six innings on 77 pitches. Made zero sense. Well, so at the time, I didn't think it was the worst move because I figured, okay, it's the first start of the season. You don't want to work him too much so early because we know how hard the Grom throws. Um, When you saw the aftermath, it looked a lot dumber. It looked a lot dumber to pull him. And it's one of those situations where I think, you want to trust your bullpen. It's the first game of the season. You want to work in your bullpen arms. Mikel Castro, Trevor May, Aaron Loop, the two arms they acquired. I mean, we talked about this last week. I'm not going to get into it again, but Loop and May were bombed in that game. They 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 were not good. Um, so I do agree with him. The Grom should not be pulled early anymore. I actually do think Rojas is part of the problem. I really do. Uh, he was not the manager. He was not the choice A manager for the Mets. He was option B, and he had a familiarity with the organization. He wasn't a head coach, um, a manager, I should say. Um, I'm in football mode. I'm getting ready for that mock draft later. But um, he's not a legit MLB manager, in my opinion. I mean, I think he's serviceable. I'm not saying the guy should get fired. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is I think he has to step it up, and you know, he has to look for help as assistant coaches. It all comes as a cohesive unit. You have to let the game settle. And I think over-managing too soon, you can certainly bite that bullet later on in the season when you are behind in the race. So, Chris, thank you for that comment. But here's the thing, Chris. Even if that doesn't make sense, let's say he goes to the seventh inning. Let's say he adds another 13 pitches. They pull him after 90. Even if he kept him in there for the seventh inning, it wasn't going to change the fact that when the guys came in for the eighth, they gave up five runs in an eighth inning. It also has to do with the fact that they gave no run support again. Two runs in the entire game. You guys have the bats, which you didn't have for the yeah. longest period of time, to execute this, right? James McCann, way better defensive catcher, way better offensive catcher than Wilson Ramos was. You have Francisco Lindor, who has a tremendous batting average and gets on base all the time. Pete Alonzo looks back in Pete Alonzo form. Jeff McNeil, you have J.D. Davis, who obviously went on the uh, the IL, but Michael Conforto. Guys just aren't playing up to par. No. Michael no. Conforto, I, I remember looking at it, Michael Conforto, when he took that hit-by-pitch uh, strike that he leaned into, he had a 167 batting average. That's guys not performing. There's nothing you could do if you're the manager if guys aren't performing. Because you're not going to get sent down this early into the season. And even if you do get sent down, who do the Mets have in their farm system that's better to replace those guys? That's another thing that the Mets don't have. And, Tom, you know that as well, that they don't have the farm system to support this kind of – It's it's starting to build back up a little bit, but it's still not great. Um, players need is, to continue. You know, uh, this is just – I do agree with you. Players need to play better, but – if players were playing better, we wouldn't be able to point out Rojas's flaws as easily. Players are not playing well. 
as a manager, you have to compensate for that and adapt to the situation. And in that instance, he didn't. He didn't. Um, you know, you know, your hitters aren't hitting. Leave him in the game a little longer. Um, but let's move on from that because we have a lot more comments here. James, if he was on the Yankees, how many wins would he have? 20. 15 to 20 every single season. James agrees with Chris. Uh, it was first game, but the Grom could throw 100 pitches. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, through two starts, he's pitched 14 innings, 0.64 ERA, 21 strikeouts. Uh, the Mets are wasting away DeGrom's prime, and um, you hope that they're able to turn things around. You want DeGrom to get at least 15 wins this season, and through two starts, he has none. He's going to get at least 30, you would imagine. So it is a little concerning. It's it's scary yeah. to, to see that because of uh, not just only himself, you know, wasting away his career, but the fact that you have the best pitcher in baseball and you can't – it's like they don't play when he's out on the mound. They just don't play, right? Chris said it perfectly, right? That's where it goes. What is the manager supposed to do with that? What is the manager supposed to do with the fact that the lineup isn't performing in clutch moments? They got to perform. That's it. You can't get blamed because you guys uh, – you run a one through nine uh, schedule – and and your bats in that order aren't performing. What are you supposed to do? Yeah, see, I'm not I'm not blaming Rojas for the lineup not performing. I'm blaming him more for the over management as far as his pitching goes um, in games. I I don't I don't think like his lineup picking is an issue. I, I think that's actually one of his strong suits. But um, the Mets have a talented team on roster. Uh, there are some good footnotes here to bring up about the Mets. Send the guard through a live bullpen session in Port St. Lucie. So Thor. Could be on the verge of returning soon. He's expected back in mid-June. So we could potentially get him back within the next two months, which is very exciting. Uh, I'm really looking forward to that. Chris says getting Syndergaard back at the All-Star break will be a boost, but team needs to produce more runs at 100%. Well, if this rehab keeps going the way it is, we could get him back before the All-Star break, which you don't want to ru rush the guy. Ideally, mid-June would be excellent, but if he's back by the All-Star break, I'll take that as well. I'll take that as well. Um, and then tomorrow, David Peterson is on the mound against Zach Wheeler, and I just want to touch upon this for one second because Zach Wheeler, it'll be his first time starting back at City Field with fans in the stands. What type of reactions do you think Zach Wheeler is going to get from the Flushing faithful? I don't know, Tom. You tell me. Uh, I know that I, I wouldn't say that he – he was liked by the Mets, but everybody, as soon as he got that contract from Philly, seemed to bash the guy that that he cashed in on a on a team overpaying for a player. Yeah, I'd applaud him. Yeah, I'd, I'd applaud him. I'm not that type of fan. Not that type of fan. Uh, I don't necessarily think fans should be booing him. Some will, though. Some will because uh, New Yorkers can be, you know, what. Uh, but anyway, <laughs> uh, back to the Grom. He'll be back on the mound Thursday against Zach Eflin. And then the Mets head out to Colorado for a weekend series with the Rockies. I remember three years ago when they went out to Colorado and they scored th like three total runs in that three-game series. I wanted to cut my teeth after watching the Mets that weekend. But uh, you know what? The Mets, they're at 500. Things could be worse. They're not off to a terrible start. It is somewhat dysfunctional, but as bad as it's been, 
they could be over 500 tonight with a win over Philadelphia, who started off strong. Weren't they 5-0 and or 5-1? Uh, and one? Now they're 6-4. and four. They're dipping yeah. down a little bit. I, I don't know if this lead's going to hold for them. I think they're in a situation now where they benefited from their schedule the first couple of series, and now they're playing against some of the tough guns in the NL East, the Mets. I know the Braves got off to a bad start, but I, I expect them to be better. The Washington Nationals, I like what they did in the offseason. So, yeah, this NL East is tough. It's yeah, tough. Listen, it's the toughest division in baseball, without a doubt. Right, That's why so many people had trouble picking it. And, and obviously, it's early in the season. It's just, yeah. you know, for me as an outsider looking in, it's just like, really? This is how, this is how we're going to start off? Yeah, All this stuff happening? All right, so we spent a lot of time in the Mets. Let's talk about your Yankees for a few as well. They are 5-5. Five and five. The Rays beat them two out of three times in Tampa Bay this weekend. They will get another shot this weekend. On Sunday, the Yankees did salvage out the third game, winning 8-4. to four. Gio Urshela had four hits and three RBIs. Odor made his Yankees debut, had a go-ahead single in the top of the 10th inning. Impressed? Uh, I've said it. I was on Hank's show last week. I said it. I, I said the Rays, I don't know what it is. They are the kryptonite of the Yankees. And in those first two games, they got outscored 14-5. to five. That, that just cannot happen. They got absolutely smashed in that first game where they let up a total of, uh, what was it? I'm trying to think, nine runs in the first four innings of baseball. It's like, how are you supposed to win a baseball game that way? And I don't even think it was Kluber. that Kluber gave up five runs, which, again, that's bad. But then they had uh, Nick Nelson come in for, for not even a full two innings and gave up four runs. They're also a team that needs to figure out their bullpen desperately. Although they have one of the best ERAs, in baseball, they because of these games that they played against Toronto early, obviously Baltimore is going to help you. Uh, they won back-to-back games against uh, – not back-to-back games, but they won the last two games, the last one against Tampa and uh, the other night against uh, Toronto, which was big. And right now they're in the bottom of the second against Toronto, uh, Toronto and Dunedin. But they need to start winning these games against these competitive teams because at the end of the day, that's who you're going to be playing. Right, you, you have the luck of the draw. You get to play the Baltimore Orioles 19 times a year. Without Baltimore in the division, you really think about it and you say, how much better are they really than the Rays in Toronto, considering those are the cream of the crop type of teams within the division? And if you're not getting those easy wins, yes, you might be a better team on paper, but you're not executing in that same form that you should be. Because then you're struggling, right? One game you won out of the first series against Toronto. One game. Another game which you struggle to get, get runs. Last night, even, Kyle Higashioka had all three runs off of two home runs. Without those two home runs, the Yankees lose the baseball game. Yeah. They're struggling to uh, – Chris brought it up about the Mets. They are struggling so much in terms of scoring with uh, runners in position and scoring position. They're struggling so much in that area. And I hope that they're able to pick it up. Like you said, Tom, I think you commented last week on Hank's show – he said the Yankees are a, a team that takes a couple weeks to get into the grit and grind, and then they start going on their ways, dominating teams. And obviously you're playing a lot of individual rivals right now, and you kind of move out of that by next week on Tuesday. Uh, start off by playing Atlanta, another tough team. But these are the teams down the line that you're going to want to face. And these are the teams that are either going to make or break you in the playoffs and make and break you in terms of where your seating is. And it's, it's kind of scary, to be quite honest with you, because I really thought the Yankees would have been somewhat of a different team this year. And it's just same thing, struggling against Tampa, struggle against Toronto. 
I'm not shocked they're off to a slow start. I mean, you know, you can complain all you want about the offense, but at least they gave Garrett Cole three runs last night, and they were able to get him a win, and he improves the 2-0 and on the season. That's two more wins than our A's has. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> so, um, yep. And your bullpen is good. Uh, I hope you're enjoying Justin Wilson and Darren O'Day, a couple former Mets. I hope you're enjoying them. Um, you know, yeah. I don't Darren know O'Day why. has been good. Justin Wilson has been good. Chapman. Uh, Chapman, Chapman's been great. Um, was missing him the first couple of games, I believe. Uh, it's part of the reason why I don't think we closed out that first game in Toronto. But yeah. they uh, – they just need to play more complete baseball. That, that, that's the reality. They need to play a complete game from start to finish. And sometimes they'll get off to an early start, or sometimes they'll get off to a later start, and that just can't happen. you got to play a full nine innings. And I don't think I've really seen a complete game like that so far, maybe with the exception of the Baltimore games. But even in those, they gave up two runs in the top of the ninth inning. Even though that game was one innings ago, yeah. they've given up runs late out of the bullpen. Folks, if you're watching us here live on Facebook, make sure to comment in the stream, share this podcast with your friends, family. Really appreciate all the love and support. And uh, yeah, Higashoka was starting in place of Gary Sanchez, who got the day off. He's been off to a good start hitting as well. Speaking of Higashoka, Sam Cardona in the comment section. What's up, Sam? He's doing very well. Should he go full time over Gary? No, I don't. I don't know. No. Uh, it's it's weird. Defensive wise, yes, but his so Sam his bat is very good, and, and Gary and I, I said this last week. Yeah. I said that the Yankees believe in him because they would not have the leash as long as they've had with him over the last couple seasons. Because as you know, he has not been the greatest player, especially batting wise, uh, defensively. And I thought about it because the the stigma going into this season was. Your ace, your $400 million man last season did not basically want to pitch to Gary Sanchez, and that's where Higashioka came in. But he started off the season with him, and Gary Sanchez kind of proved himself. He, he played very well. But now we're seeing now in Cole's second start, he doesn't get that start. I think that Higashioka is going to be starting when, the, when Cole is pitching. I think the only reason why Sanchez played in that first game, not no knock against him, was because it looks if you're Aaron Boone, I think it looks very awkward and very weird if you don't have Gary Sanchez starting for you on opening day. That's my personal opinion. I think you could do that after the fact where you could pull something like having Higashioka play last night, and not having Gary Sanchez uh, play. And I think he did he pinch. I think he might have pinch hit. Uh, no, he didn't play at all last night. But he's going to be playing when Cole is not starting. Sadly, and. It's sad because as a Yankee fan, you want to see that type of play. You want to see that type of production out of your starting catcher because this is the guy that you essentially believe is going to be your long-term catcher. And considering the fact that your ace doesn't want to pitch to him or is uncomfortable in a sense, that that what it leads me to believe. Right. Because if you have a great catcher-pitcher connection, that's the guy that should be starting, not Kyle Higashioka. But it also comes in the fact that now his bat is Higashioka. It's getting too good to keep out of the lineup. So I don't know what they do at this point. He's got five total homers. Yeah, against Against Toronto Toronto. as of last night. I agree, his bat is so good. Yep. It's going to be a very, very difficult play uh, for uh, Aaron Boone and the Yankees come the stretch, and it becomes even more difficult again is because, you know, you're in the playoffs, Mm -hmm. right? Are you going to keep Gary Sanchez out of the lineup so that Kyle Higashioka can can have Garrett Cole pitch to him? 
it becomes a very difficult situation. And then you're taking Gary Sanchez bat out of the lineup. And Gary Sanchez has been clutch over the last couple of years. And we've seen that. So, yeah, no, I definitely agree. I think it's an awkward situation. You have two good catchers, though. So that's something to keep in the back of uh, your mind as well. But I, I think all Yankee fans should take this in, in, into consideration moving forward because it's kind of a good problem to have. Some teams don't have one good in ca- one good hitting catcher. But uh, Sam, thanks a lot for the comment. Make sure to go check her out at the Girl Who Talks Sports podcast. Um, she just had um, her merchandise out. Really appreciate Sam, as always, having us on her show. We love having her on our podcast as well. She's very insightful with pretty much everything, especially Giants stuff and Yankees as well. So, Sam, thanks so much for commenting. Folks, keep the comments coming. Really appreciate it. And, Kyle, I, I kind of want to get back to you here about um, tonight. Jameson Talion is on the mound against Hinjin Ryu. What do you think about Talion so far? I think he's been pretty what the Yankees expected out of him. I mean, Talion's been good. Uh, I think in the one start that he had against Baltimore, uh, again, it was against Baltimore, but he looked decent. He allowed two runs in that game, had seven Ks. Um Went four and two innings, two third innings. I, I believe mm-hmm. it was something around that. But again, it, by that point of the game, the the Yankees were kind of putting it away. The what needs to what needs to happen is, and I think I said this last week as well, is that Tyon and Kluber and all these other guys, with the exception of Garrett Cole, need to get more starts underneath them because they haven't played in such a long time. The Yankees are in a, I I would say, a dilemma and a little bit of an issue because of the fact that with the exception of Cole, Kluber played one inning last year and basically has not played baseball in two years. Same thing goes for Tyon, who only pitched like an inning or two last year. And same thing goes for Domingo Herman, who didn't play at all last season because of the suspension. So that's their two through four right now at this point in time until a guy like Severino comes back. They're in a, I would say they're in a bad situation because in order for these guys to get back to that, I'm not saying Kluber's going to be back at that Cy Young standpoint or Tyon's going to be the, the, the once really good pitcher that he was again. Uh, but in order to get back to that place, they're going to need a lot more starts and a lot more innings underneath their belt. Now that could take till June, potentially till July, potentially. And right. that means that in these games, where you see the Yankees aren't producing run-wise or hit-wise, these guys essentially have to be perfect, or the bullpen has to be perfect because these guys aren't going the long stretch innings, like Tyon only going four and Kluber only going four. And Domingo Herman, I believe, got pulled in oh. his first start, a second start. He did, yep. Speaking of this, just in, Blue Jays are up 2-0. Uh, Palacios had a two-run single scoring Randall Gerchuk and Ludris Gurriel Jr., so the Yankees are down 2 nothing early against Toronto. And then tomorrow, they're going to have Kluber on the mound. He's going to be pitching against Ross Stripling, former LA Dodger. So that should be a fun game to watch as well. But um, And then the last thing I want to touch upon the Yankees is they will host the Rays this weekend up in the Bronx uh, for another weekend series. Hopefully it's in better fortune because they played down in Tropicana Field last weekend. Didn't go very well for them but uh, they're home. So hopefully the Yankees are able to solve the pieces, missing pieces to the puzzle against their kryptonite over the last couple of years, the Tampa Bay Rays. All right. So 
Let's move on to some hockey. We are going to recap New York sports, which is all over the place this weekend. Rangers Islanders recap. We had two games against each other, Kyle, uh, Friday night and Sunday night. On Friday, the Blue Shirts won four to one. Colin Blackwell, Alexis Lafreniere, Keandre Miller, and Mika Zabinijad all scored. Artemi Panarin had two assists. Andy Green had a goal for the Islanders. Nobody scored in this game until the second period, and there was only one power play the entire game. It was a very mistake-free game, in my opinion, from a penalty perspective. But Georgiev was outstanding in net. The Rangers really dominated this hockey game on Friday night, and it's it was really great to see as a Rangers fan because this team is starting to come together despite some of the off-the-field issues that you know we had this year with first Panarin and now – uh, Tony D'Angelo. So I'm kind of happy where we're at. Yeah, they had a they had a great they had a great game against the Isles, and they took advantage of the fact that Gorgiev has a history of uh, being uh, you know an Islander stopper and being an issue for them. So that was smart in the sense of Quinn and starting him. And on top of the fact, Tom, that was his first game played for the Rangers in basically a month. The last start that he had prior to that game was like March, I want to say 15th or something like that was his last start. He wasn't performing up to forms. And then he gets this start, and he excels tremendously. Um, On the Islanders' behalf, they just just looked tired in this game. They really looked tired. They weren't skating right. You were hearing it all game long by both sets of announcers, whether um, it was Butch or or Brendan. They just looked tired. And, And you could see that they defensively they looked good. Offensively, they weren't. Uh, they weren't playing that great, obviously, in a result of a one-score game for the Isles. But Varlamov had a couple bounces not go his way, and you know they wound up losing the game. But the Rangers did look good. Zibanejad's goal was a uh, uh, empty net, just kind of cleared it and wound up clearing it for a goal. But it's good to see these young guys really. That's something that I noticed particularly is that yes, you have your Panarin that you could always bank on, Zibanejad. Uh, Strom, Truba, some of those older veterans. But a lot of the young guys is what won this game for the Rangers. Capo Ka- uh, Caco coming away with an assist. Philip Hedl coming away with an assist. Lafaniere getting away with a goal. Uh, Keandre Miller coming away with a goal. That's what's been impressive for me is that where these guys have had stints and, and glimmers of you know what they're able to do, and they perform this well against a really good team defensively as well, is that the Islanders are one of the best defensive teams in hockey. They don't give up that many goals, and they play great pressure defense. And for the young guys to be the ones to take advantage of this team was highly impressive in this game for me particularly. And one other man I want to hit on is Colin Blackwell, a young player, only his third year in the NHL, spent his two first seasons with Nashville. He has 12 goals already on the season, which is definitely good. I know we're over halfway through at this point, but – um, you know, Colin Blackwell has been developing into a real nice player for the Rangers. But on Sunday, I was watching the game out in Long Island on my phone because um, I was not home. But the Rangers did lose to the Islanders 3-2 to two in overtime. I believe uh, the Islanders led 2 nothing towards the end of the first. And Palmieri and Peugeot scored the goals for them. Hayek and Smith scored for the Rangers in the second. And then Ryan Pulak with the game-winning goal. In overtime, Kyle, this was a back-and-forth type of game, but the Islanders really held their own. They won nearly 60% of face-offs, and they dominated in shots on goal. Yeah, they did, and the game kind of ended in a weird fashion. Um, 
right before the OT had started, there was a uh, just a missed call center ice. I believe it was, I think, 21 on your team. I think that's Howden. Had a high stick yeah. on on Pellick and just completely missed it. The referee is right there. It would have been a uh, a five-on-four opportunity with about a minute and a half, two and a half minutes left in the game, but no call. And then there was two penalizations on both sides, and they entered the OT on a four-and-four. And then I guess that was canceled out, negated, and they just wanted up going straight to three on three as the overtime uh, began. And that's when Pollock scored the goal, which was great for him because that was his first goal of the season. Um, obviously, a defenseman. I think he had 14 assists going to that game, but his first yeah. goal of the season. So that was great to see him get off to a hot, uh, a good. I don't want to say start, but start to get his legs back underneath him as well. As that was his first goal in probably over a year since the last opportunity in which he had. Because I, I don't know. In terms of regular season, I can't remember what he had goal wise in the playoffs when they entered the bubble. But being that the season did end and take a hiatus in March, that must have been his first goal in over a year. Yeah, yeah, no, you're definitely right. It, it was just good to see the Islanders be able to kind of get back to what they were doing because you know, I mean, the Rangers have been hot as of late. They've been beating teams that are better than them. They're a few games over 500. The Islanders are in a race right now with the Caps where, like, they're kind of one of the best teams in hockey, but they're still kind of in that, like, I, I still feel like the Islanders are in between that first tier of teams and that second best tier of teams, if you know what I mean. I don't know, like, if they're that elite team that is a Stanley Cup Finals, like, championship contender or if they're a team that's a legitimate playoff contender you know with a chance to get there I feel like they're somewhere stuck in in between those two but you know I've got to say I've been very impressed they do have a tough schedule coming up they're at the Bruins on Thursday and Friday and then on Sunday they're at Philadelphia so three tough road games for the Islanders uh this upcoming week any any predictions I mean, I think uh, I, I don't want to be cocky when I say this, but they haven't lost a game to Boston all year. I think they're six and zero against them. So yep, yep. Boston has not been a, a difficult task for them. Philadelphia, uh, I think they've split the series on Philadelphia, but Philadelphia this more so the second half of the season so far. They've just not really played up to that magnitude that we saw them last season. Um, but the Rangers, the Rangers are a good team. I was saying it all year. The Rangers are a good team. They had a lot of. Uh, hiccups in between, Hedl getting hurt, uh, Truba getting hurt, Panarin on the hiatus, Mika Zibanejad recovering from COVID, now looking back to form. Uh, so they had some troubles, but I think that they've gotten themselves back to that point where you could say, you know, this could be a team that can make a playoff push, can be one of those remaining four seeds in the East um, for the NHL. But again, with the Islanders, I think they're tied at 58 right now with the Washington Capitals. They have a rough uh, the Islanders have a really tough, I, I would say, rest of their April between playing Boston, playing Philly, playing the Rangers twice, and playing uh, Washington. So even though they're in a good position right now uh, to stay within the top four seeds, I, I really don't want to see them fall out of that first or second spot at this point in time. And with a tough schedule coming up, they're going to have to come away with a decent amount of these wins and at least some of these points coming up ahead. We know the last, uh, you know, in another sport that we're both fans of this past year, our team lost the division to Washington. So hopefully the Islanders are able to overcome that feat and win the East. But as a Rangers fan, 
We're 19, 16, and 6, and we have four games against the Devils this week in a row. I don't know how the scheduling led to that point, but we're at New Jersey tonight. They're at the Garden Thursday and Saturday, and then the Rangers are back at Prudential Center on Sunday. And we're currently tied fifth with Philadelphia. Rangers currently up one nothing off of Mika Zabinajad goal. Yeah, you got to win all those games. Got to win all those games if you want to take over that uh, that fourth spot by Boston because I think they're playing Buffalo right now. It's tied at 1-1, and you guys currently stand four points behind them in the seating. Got to take advantage of the schedule. You do. I mean, I don't know if we win all four, but, I mean, I think – I don't necessarily consider three as a disappointment. No, no. New definitely Jersey's not a an disappointment. improved team. Definitely not a disappointment, but you got to you gotta win a, dec- a, a decent majority of those games, I guess I'd say. Yeah. Last news here on hockey for tonight. Tony D'Angelo will be bought out by the Rangers at the end of the season. He was sent home earlier this season after an incident with uh, Georgiev. Rumors are that the Rangers wanted to mutually part ways with him to terminate his contract. He would have went through waivers as certain teams were interested, including the Montreal Canadiens. But there was an issue with the cap where teams didn't want to give the Rangers more cap, a team who, quite frankly, has already a huge pool of youth and teams don't want to add cap to a team like the Rangers who have, who are just about to explode with all this young talent. Yep. So it's sad seeing this way for D'Angelo though. Yeah. It's, it's, it's very, it's difficult to see, especially after the season that he had last year. But, you know, obviously that was another factor that I didn't even think of in the beginning of the season as well. Fighting with the goaltender It's just, again, there's no place for it in a, in a a team spirited locker room. You got to, you got to you got to cut away. You got to cut the ties. So that'll do it for. We actually have a comment from Kearns here. Uh, your buddy Justin from JDF Sports. Kyle, not a single word of basketball talk. No, not uh, not tonight, not Justin. Tonight. Not we tonight. Had, we had that all last night with Paul Lombardi on the three and D. He covered it for us this week because a lot of time sensitive topics popped up, including this one, which I think a lot of those JDF guys are going to enjoy. The retirement of well, not enjoy, but the retirement of Julian Edelman, who announced his retirement from the NFL after 11 seasons with the New England Patriots. He was released yesterday following a failed physical, but the roster move was more of a technicality with his retirement. I mean, he knew he was going to retire before this happened, obviously. So it's sad, you know, 34 years old. He only played six games last year, very chronic in the injury. So I can't blame the guy. He's an older player who's had injury issues in the past. He's never fully started all 16 games in a season. So he was an outstanding player who truly embodied that underdog status. He was an underdog. I mean, seventh round pick in 09 out of Kent State. Was a quarterback. Yeah, as a quarterback, which is even insane. He's a tiny guy, too, but ball of speed. Yeah, Julian Edelman is a – and I said this to a bunch of uh, my Patriot Patriot friends. Um, Julian Edelman was probably one of the more entertaining players that I've been able to witness over the course of my football fandom uh, from a young kid because he really came on the scene – his first, I would say, three – I want to say his first three, four years in the NFL from 2009 to 2012, he didn't do much. But then in 2013 was when he absolutely exploded. 
He went from, in 2012, having 21 receptions to a whopping 105 in 2013. That's when he became that star slot guy for the New England Patriots, Tom Brady's favorite weapon, and really started to establish himself as a, as a really good wide receiver in this league. So it took him a while to uh, even, I'd, I'd go as far as to say, gain the trust of Bill Belichick and gain the trust of Tom Brady. Being on that roster for the first four years, more as a, uh, a kick returner or probably a third or fourth string re- receiver, to now ultimately being the guy that helped Tom Brady win so many of those Super Bowls that you know the Patriots do have as an organization. Yeah, Edelman, also Tom Brady left them a heartfelt message. Those guys were best buds. Um, I remember going up against Edelman as a Giants fan. I remember, you know, the Super Bowl back in 2011, uh, 2012, 2011, 2012 season. That was a big game. That was a big game. And Edelman, you know, had a lot of historic moments in his in his career. And we're going to evaluate his career stats right now. The man had 620 catches. Um uh, over 8,000 receiving yards, almost 9,000 throughout his career, 36 touchdowns and a three-time Super Bowl champion. Uh, insane numbers yep. for a guy who was around for I – mean, I mean, he didn't score that many touchdowns, but that's not the type of player that he was. He was kind of more a move-the-chains type of guy who was able to make people miss in space. I mean, I really thought – and you mentioned this before. He was a core special teams player for them, a return man who was their number four receiver. He was stuck behind guys like Wes Welker. Um, I believe Moss was still there for a year. So he had guys in front of him on that depth chart. And quite frankly, he embodied that underdog status, which is why I really admire him as a player. He had 118 postseason catches. That's the second most in NFL history. You can probably figure out who leads the NFL in postseason catches. Um, just by doing the math, the best receiver of all time. And he was also a former Super Bowl MVP against the Rams, the game that nobody liked. Uh, yeah. The 13-3 win, he quietly had 10 catches for 141 yards in that game, Kyle. And he also had that remarkable catch in the Super Bowl against the Falcons where they were down 28-3, to a game that put Tom Brady over the top. In my opinion, if he wasn't already at that point the best quarterback of all time, that game officially made him the best quarterback of all time in a lot of other fans' eyes. Yeah. No, I, I agree with you 100%. That catch, uh, the bobble, where just the the hand-eye coordination, you know, you say those words and you see it sometimes with athletes. That might have been one of the greatest uh, the greatest catches I think I've ever seen in terms of the ability to do what he did getting getting slammed from both angles, bobbles the ball literally a couple inches above the ground and, and manages to hold on as he bobbles it. Absolutely unbelievable. And now, Tom, I, I'll, I'll leave this up for discussion because I have my take, but I want to hear your take. Yeah. We talk about the unbelievable career of Julian Edelman, and I've asked a lot of people this. Is, is Julian Edelman a Hall of Famer? And I wanted to hear your take. Um, so I, I, I think the biggest thing is – that what people need to ask themselves is what is a Hall of Famer, right? What garners Hall of Fame status in the NFL? Um, and Kern says, in my opinion, that is the greatest catch of all time. Yeah, I mean, it's it's up there. I mean, for me, it's the Tyree helmet catch over Rodney. Yeah. yeah. For, for me, I mean that that play should have probably shouldn't have happened, but it did. Um, but that Edelman diving catch was outstanding. Um, 
that that's definitely up there for sure. But I don't think he's a Hall of Famer. He never played one full 16-game season where he started all 16 games. He didn't do that once. Remember, your best ability is your availability. He wasn't always available for New England. When he was, he was outstanding. Um, he never started more than 13 games in a, in a season. He, he also didn't become a full-time starter until his fifth year. Yeah. So my question is, does he even garner any Hall of Fame consideration? Because the Hall of Fame is supposed to be for the best of the best. Edelman was great, but he wasn't the best, in my opinion. He was one of the best as far as the New England Patriots go. One of their best receivers of all time. But as far as the NFL goes and Hall of Fame, I don't think I could put him in there, sadly. Players that remind me of you know asking if Julian Edelman is a is a Hall of Famer. Two players that, that come to mind are actually former paid, uh, former Pittsburgh Steelers, Heinz Ward and Lynn Swan. And, and Lynn Swan got in and had very similar stats to Julian Edelman. Uh, the difference between him and Julian Edelman was that he had the Pro Bowls behind him, and he had one All Pro appearance, I believe. Um, he also had, I believe, 10 or 11 more touchdowns, but didn't have near the statistics that Julian Edelman did uh, in terms of the postseason. Julian Edelman also, three years in his career, eclipsed 1,000 yards of receiving, and that's got to mean something, as well as over 100 receptions in two of his career, uh, two of his seasons. Uh, one he finished off with 98 in, one he finished off with 92 in. Yeah. And like you said, your best ability is your availability, and that does hurt him in this case. But I think what gives him the argument is that he has the postseason statistics behind him, and I think that's what is most remembered and should be taken into consideration. Do I think he's a first ballot Hall of Famer? Absolutely not. But I could see an argument for him getting in. The argument that I see him not getting in is the other player that I brought up, Heinz Ward, who is not a Hall of Famer yet. And Heinz Ward has 1,000 career catches. Julian only has 620. Heinz Ward has 12,000 yards receiving. Julian Edelman only has 6,800. Heinz has 85 touchdowns. Julian Edelman has 36. They both have Super Bowl MVPs, and Heinz has four Pro Bowls compared to Julian Edelman's none, and Heinz Ward is not a Hall of Famer. So I think that's where the argument gets thrown away. Right. And he's been eligible the last, I want to say, the last five years of his career, uh, the last five years, Heinz Ward. Uh, availability to get into the Hall of Fame, and he's not been deemed the Hall of Famer yet. So if he's not one yet, I, I don't see how Julian Edelman gets in. That's that's my personal right. take. And Edel, Edelman, I, I, he was close to 9,000 career receiving yards, but he he isn't a Hall of Famer in my mind. He's a re remarkable talent. It's Kearns with the comments again. Don't make me think about that catch again. The best part was we did it twice. We did it with Tyree, and then we did it with Manningham in the next one. And those were two guys that only Bill Belichick had his mind on. You know, I remember Belichick quoting in that game, make him throw it to Manningham, make him throw it to Pasco. What did the Giants do? They throw it to Manningham, and they get it. I think it was 47, 50, it was 45 to 50-something yards down the field. And that was definitely clutch. But back to Edelman here, he does garner consideration, but I don't think he gets it. No, um, neither do I. I don't but think he does. I will say this. 
I think he was one of those players that got better with age. He had over 100 catches and over 1,100 uh, yeah, 1100 receiving yards two years ago, which was a career high for him. Tom Brady's last year in New England, 2019. He was, he was that guy. He was Brady's security blanket, especially after Gronk left. That's what Brady relied on. You know, these receivers weren't doing much for Tom Brady in his last season in New England. Edelman was the only guy. Yeah. And the reason uh, I, I think about it more, the reason why Julian Edelman was never a Pro Bowl is because he's always playing in the Super Bowl. Right. That's a that's good the point. Reason why, that's the reason why he was never a Pro Bowl because he was winning the uh, – the 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 game that make or breaks your career as a player that you all look to achieve. He had three of those rings on the end of the day on his fingers, and one of those he won a Super Bowl MVP, and so that's part of the reason as well. And uh, quickly here, moving on from Julian Edelman, just want to announce that another big move today. The Cardinals did sign free agent running back James Conner. Had six touchdowns last year for the Steelers, coming off his rookie deal. Any any thoughts about that? It's a good. I would assume he'd be the second back behind Chase Edmonds. Uh, again, they they run a they run a scheme where Kyler Murray has the ability to run with under his own legs, so it doesn't it didn't make sense to bring back a guy like Kenyon Drake. He signs with the Oakland uh, Oakland Raiders, the Las Vegas Raiders, um, and they bring in James Conner, who can be that secondary back behind Chase Edmonds because I think he has the 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 standing over him, considering that he's been within the organization for a while longer. And James Conner is coming off a couple injured seasons as well with the Pittsburgh Steelers, so. I think it's a good signing for them definitely as a backup back. Yeah, I do too. Uh, but now is where we get into the fun part of our show. And Kyle, I hope you got your papers ready. Hope yep. you worked hard overnight on this. Definitely, We're did. going to reveal a two-round mock draft for the New York Jets and New York Giants. So how we're going to do this, we'll start with the Jets. We'll go over. 223 and 34 because those are the picks in the first and second round and then for the Giants we will go over picks 11 and 42 it's weird because the Jets are pretty pick friendly in this draft they just acquired another sixth round pick in this year's draft from the Sam Darnold trade and then the Giants of course a lot of people saying they should trade back in the first round to acquire more draft capital uh, they only have six picks in this year's draft but um, without further ado Kyle we will get in. We'll we'll start with the Jets, and then we'll move over to the Giants. So, I'll let you go first. And I know we kind of talked about this live on the show last week, but for those who missed it, who do you have going second overall for the Jets? I have Zach Wilson going second overall to the Jets. Uh, without a doubt, I don't even think it's a question at this point in time. Uh, Trevor Lawrence is going number one. They just traded away Sam Darnold last week. Uh, the Jets they are in search of a quarterback. It's a matter of which one will it be? And I think that obviously the name that's been tagged to them for at least the last month and a half now, almost two months, it's been Zach Wilson. At first it was Justin Fields. Now it's Zach Wilson after his tremendous uh, pro day. And I, and I don't think without a doubt that it's going to be anybody else other than Zach Wilson. You know, we saw a couple years back where uh, back in 2018 in the Sam draft, up until the day of the draft, everybody thought that Sam Darnold was going number one to the Cleveland Browns. And Baker Mayfield and Josh Allen were the quarterbacks tied to the New York Jets at that point in time. Then when Baker gets selected with that number one overall, they then take Sam out of USC. Could I see something like that happening where they take somebody else in Justin Fields? It's almost a smokescreen. Absolutely. But 
I think that the name that's been tagged to them, the offense in which they may look to run, having a guy like Michael Fleur, who has been with some of the best offensive talent that there is, working with Kyle Shanahan the last couple of years of his NFL career uh, as an offense coordinator, you'd want to take the guy. And not that I think that Justin Fields is fantastic as an athlete, but I think that Zach Wilson after that pro day proved a lot. I think he did, and I think that's the guy in which they go with uh, come April 29th, come draft night. I agree. My quick analysis on him, my buddy Chris Sims uh, likes him more than Trevor Lawrence. Interesting. So does Josh McCown, which is just insane to think about. And Chris Sims is usually right with a lot of his takes when it comes to quarterbacks because he's a former quarterback, uh, Chris Sims, from the North Jersey area. So. Uh, yeah, I think he's going number two. Who do you have going 23rd? Uh, I have Jason Owa going number 23 to mm-hmm. the Jets, edge out of Penn State. Again, we talked about this, Tom, last week. I just don't see the Jets, as you alluded to, I think you put it in these terms, I don't see the Jets double-dipping on uh, on offense in the first round. And, and having a guy like Robert Sala, who uh, we obviously know the defense in which he led um, with the 49ers the last couple of years, He's talked about it when he came in as the uh, as the new Jets head coach is that he's looking to build a defense uh, with the cornerstone being Quinn and Williams. And I think that where that starts building up that defensive front, you need some great pass rushers. And I think that Jason Owa is a guy that's climbed up a lot of people's draft boards and a guy that had a, again, another tremendous pro day uh, athletic freak. And I think this is a good position. While there are a lot of great players left on the board, obviously, and obviously a lot of position in which the Jets need to fulfill. I think having a guy in Robert Sala there, a defensive-minded coach, he's going to look to build upon that defensive side of the ball, and I think Jason O was one of the best players on the board at that point in time, at least on my mock draft. I like that. Local kid, too, out of Howell, New Jersey, about an hour and a half away from the New York City area. So for me, I have similar type of player. I have a defensive player, too. I have Jeremiah Owusu-Karamoa at Notre Dame. I know um, I was interviewed last week by Alec Walt on Down the Block Sports. If you haven't checked that YouTube channel out yet and that video, make sure to go check us out or check him out at Down the Block Sports. Make sure to check out our video where I'm talking about some of the Notre Dame prospects as I'm a big Notre Dame fan. But Owusu-Karamoa was originally recruited to to Notre Dame to play the rover position. He's a hybrid type of linebacker that can rush the quarterback pass coverage, stop the run. He's the full package. This is not a player that comes around often. Um, Scheme fit is a concern, not for the Jets, but for a lot of other NFL teams. He's not a fit for everybody. I know Salah will know how to utilize him very well, so I have him going 23rd overall to the Jets. I think he is a freakish type of player um, who can potentially go as early as 15. So, but I think he clock, clocks in here at 23 to the Jets. Um, but moving on to the second round, num- pick number 34. I'll go first here for uh, for this one. I have them taking cornerback Greg Newsom out of Northwestern. Uh, I have Newsom falling out of the first round. He will be the second pick of the second round, in my opinion. 6'1", 190-pound build. Uh, only one career interception as far as his college career goes, that came this past year, actually. I think he's a well-versed corner. He can do cover three pretty well, quarters coverage, uh, press man. Uh, pass interference penalties from his press man coverage are definitely alarming. 
from the film that I watched from Northwestern this year, especially when they played Ohio State. I think he's got good strength and physicality. He's very good with his foot placement as well. He's a tall guy. I just mentioned he's 6'1". My concern with him is only 18 starts in college, but what I think Robert Salah and the Jets staff is really going to value is that quarterbacks only completed under 33% of passes thrown at him in college. He only gave up a 32% completion rate, and that is something to value. And I think the Jets will do that at pick number 34. Well, the 34th pick, I have the Jets taking uh, Tevin Jenkins' offensive line at Oklahoma State. Uh, they need to address that offensive line for whatever quarterback that they are planning on bringing in because as at this point in time, it's still a mess. Uh, besides uh, left tackle, Makai Beckton, and bringing in a right tackle, in which Tevin Jenkins is at Oklahoma State. He's got a nice athletic build, 320 pounds, big hands around 10 inches, um, can play the tackle position at a very high level. And I think that you need to protect your quarterback. I believe that's that would be if Zach Wilson is the quarterback, that would be his blind side. I believe that would be the case. That's what they need. That's what I think that in order to make sure whatever quarterback that they have, because that's something that they didn't do with Sam Darnold. And I, I mean, they tried when they added guys like George Fent. They tried when they added guys like Connor McG- um, McDermott, I believe it was. Um, they tried to solidify that offensive line. Greg Van Roten uh, a couple years back as well. It didn't work out. Nobody in that offensive line, with the exception of Mekhi Beckton, should be safe. And I think they look to replace and help establish a solid offensive line to protect the quarterback that they will draft with that second overall pick. I like it. Uh, he's definitely a good prospect. I think Tevin Jenkins is a guy that I think I have him going in the first round, but I think he could potentially slip due to the depth in the tackle class. So I think that's a guy to keep an eye on as well. I, I don't trust George Fant at right tackle. Um, I know they have Mekhi Becton from last year. So, but yeah, it'll be interesting to see what happens there. But now moving on to the Giants. As you know, last week we each revealed our uh, first-round pick for the Giants on our uh, full first-round mock draft on Reaving Preview. But, Kyle, just to catch everyone up to speed, who do you have going at number 11? I have Jalen Waddell uh, being taken with the 11th overall pick by the New York Giants. I think, again, even though they brought in guys like a Kenny Galladay, um, you know, we talked about the tenure of Sterling Shepard as he is an older player, uh, releasing Golden Tate. What is Darius Slayton at this point in time? Uh, I think they look to improve upon that receiving core. Uh, John Ross being a one-year deal. I think that adding a nice young player into that offense core does not help you. And the Giants on numerous occasions have stated that they will be taking the best player available. And, and, and I'm comfortable with that as a Giants fan because when I really look at this team from top to bottom, there's really not, maybe with the exception of a Micah Parsons falls, which I don't think he will to number 11, I don't really see there being a player that stands at a position of need at this point in time. It was cornerback for me. They could improve upon the offensive line with a Rashawn Slater. Uh, it was cornerback before Dory Jackson signed with the Giants. But now just adding depth to that receiving core because, again, if a Kenny Galladay who has an injury history goes down, the Giants are right back in that same boat with offensive weapons being given to Daniel Jones and not having a substantial amount of picks, even though the receiving class is deep this year, not having a substantial amount of picks can affect you in terms of what you're adding to this roster at this point in time. So I think this is a quality value pick and can start a young offensive core within the giant system at the receiving position. 
I like Jalen Waddle a lot. I think he's an excellent player. Um, what I think the Giants should do, and I know we're not really considering trades here, but the Giants should trade down to around that 15-20 range, draft an edge rusher, then draft Zeitler's re- replacement in the second round, draft Tomlinson's replacement in the third round, and then I think you're pretty darn cooking. I think that's an outstanding draft. I mean, you could go that route. There's other routes you could go as well. I also currently have them taking Jalen Waddle if they stay at 11. The Giants are huge on BPA, best player available. I think he's probably the best player available here. A lot of people are saying, well, scouts are concerned from certain teams with the size of Devontae Smith. He's built at 175. He's more like 160. Um, you know, he, it's like you're considering a steak. You know, it's pretty medium. Devontae Smith is rare. He, he's not uh, a healthy weight for a wide receiver. What a comparison. What a comparison. <laughs> Compare, not to compare Devontae Smith to uh, a steak, but um, that's what he is. Um, I think he's going to go sooner than number 11. I don't think he's going to fall. I think Waddle, with the injury he had last year, and not playing as much, could be that one receiver to fall um, to the Giants at number 11, where I think, again, you could explore the idea. Micah Parsons, Rashawn Slater, I know they've been linked to Quietie Pay, which I'm not a big fan of at 11. I think any edge rusher at 11 is a reach, but – here I have Jalen Waddle, unless they trade down. But at 11, here I have Waddle. Um, number 42, I'm really excited to hear your number 42 pick. I want to see where you're heading towards in the second round because obviously we both have the exact same first-round pick. So it'll be interesting to see how we hopefully differ on this one. So with the, what you say, Tom, was the 43rd pick in the draft? 42nd. 42nd pick in the draft, second round for the New York Giants. I have them taking, as you talked about earlier, they could take an edge. I have them taking an edge at a Wake Forest. Carlos Basham Jr. Uh, worked in a 4-3 system at Wake Forest. But again, again, I think the Giants need to address that edge position. And I think this is a perfect spot for him to land. If he does become one of those guys that falls a little bit, some people have them going in the first round. I think he falls to the mid-second round. And then the Giants get an excellent steal at the edge position. Basham in the last two years at Wake Forest has a combined 15 sacks in his four-year collegiate career is 19 and a half sacks uh, in six games this past year, five sacks on the season. So he's a tremendous player that gets to the quarterback. And with the exception of Leonard Williams on this roster, the Giants don't necessarily have that. And I think that would be an excellent addition for this team to have moving forward. I like it. I think he could potentially be an option there. Um, you know, I mean, Carlos Basham, I mean, he – he, he had his moments at Wake Forest. I think there's potential he could go back into the first round, too. So I think if he falls to the Giants, that would be insane. I think that would be a home run pick at 42 yeah. for sure. That would be uh, like how we felt with uh, Xavier McKinney last year, falling yeah. into the second round. Speaking of falling, I think someone's going to fall. Someone's going to fall right into our lap at number 42. Uh I really wanted to see Jason Owe. I'm not going to. I don't think yeah. he's going to fall that far. Um, I think the zero sacks with him are alarming. I know he has ties to Sean Spencer. I don't think he's falling to 42. I think if the Giants want him, they got to trade up to earlier in the second round. I have them taking Joe Tryon, edge out of Washington. I know the Giants have been linked to him. He has outstanding size. He was really good at Washington this past year. He's big. Like I mentioned, he's 6'5". 
And I think this is a player that could be an excellent scheme fit. Lorenzo Carter is entering a contract year coming off a torn Achilles. O'Shane Zimmon has only played a few games last year. We were relying on guys like Carter Coughlin. Um, obviously, Joe Tryon opted out in 2020. He did not play, but he did have eight sacks in 2019. So I think Joe Tryon would be an excellent scheme fit as to what the Giants are trying to accomplish under Patrick Graham. So, would be a good pick. Definitely be a good pick. Uh, again, the concern in which you talked about as well is that he hasn't played football in a year. So, yeah. just to get his body back into that football shape, as we've seen, you know, players uh, not having that 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 year taken off tend to have more of an injury prone. But I think it could definitely be a great value pick and potentially even a steal, considering that he didn't play this past year. For me, it came down to him and Ronnie Perkins out of Oklahoma. It was yes. going to be one of them, too. I, I like I, Ronnie Perkins a lot. I do. I like him, too. I would be cool if OS some, somehow fell to 34. I mean, you got you to gotta take that, man. I mean, he's a local kid. The move would geographically make sense. He has ties to Sean Spencer. He has ties to uh, another coach on the Giants as well. Um, you know, he had no sacks in 2020. So when I heard him come out of your mouth at 23 for the Jets, I was like, damn, they're really going to take a man who had no sacks. But to be fair, people who are smart analysts when it comes to football, regardless of what player you're taking, look past the stats. Um, you know, there's certain plays where a guy could have like five sacks in a game and they come half a second short of getting to the quarterback. You know, they yeah. have a lot of speed and a lot of good awareness, but. It's some of the teams that they're matched up against. And, you know, that, that Big Ten's a tough conference to play in. But I have Joe Tryon. I think he might fall to the Giants at 42. But, Kyle, this was a lot of fun going over the Jets and the Giants. Definitely going to be interesting to see what happens the night of the draft. Absolutely. Can't wait. I can't wait for it. I mean, that's that's probably one of my more – exciting times of the year when the football NFL draft comes. It's, it's, it's very exciting. Last question for you. Yeah. Do you think, do you think the Giants should trade back out of the number 11 spot where you think they should stay put? Not if you think they will, do you think they should consider it? I think they should definitely consider it again, where it becomes difficult is because at their position right now, like if they were a team within the top 10, I would be full force and say trade the pick because then you can be a team that fleeces another team to get into that quarterback conversation. But there may very well be the chance that there might be four quarterbacks going one, two, three, and four, and then another team trading up to get that fifth guy, whatever that fifth guy is, whether it's Trey Lance, Justin Fields, or Mac Jones within that top 10. I would be interested to see, what team would be interested in moving up in that position? Obviously, teams can favor a player and really believe in a player and give up the house for somebody. And in a year where the Giants only have six picks, I would not be opposed to it. My thing is, if they do a trade, I don't want to see them move out of the top 20. That would be my thing. I don't want to see them move out of the top 20. Right. Yeah. I think if New England maybe wanted to trade up for Mac Jones at, let's say, number 11, I think that would be an ideal trade to make. Move down to 15, you can take a guy like Aziz Ojolari or somebody of that nature. Um, Steve Ellis, what's up, fellas? Steve, man, you're coming in at the end. Uh, I do apologize about that. But, uh, yeah, man, if you have any last-minute uh, questions on, on the Giants, we'll be live for another minute or two. But uh, 
Yeah, we just talked about our two-round mocks for the Giants. So, um, But, yeah, we'll be putting up more videos like this soon. Um, folks, remember, uh, quick reminder to sign up for our 2021 NFL Draft Video Challenge if you're watching. What this is is you take a video of yourself reacting to your team's favorite pick on the night of the draft live on the first round or have someone take a video of you. You send it over to us, Kyle, or myself. You message us, DM us on Instagram, whatever it is. And then we enter it into our Instagram account. We publish it, and we'll make a nice video at the end with all 30, well, however many picks we get. We still have some more picks to fill, but if you're interested, feel free to reach out to us. And, Kyle, it's been a lot of fun tonight having you on, and we continue to hold down the fort here on Review and Preview. So a lot of good things in store coming up. Absolutely. Little technical difficulties in the beginning, but uh, still a great show tonight. Yeah, 15 minutes late, but hey, if it works, it works. Yep. All right, Kyle, thank you very much for joining me. Folks, make sure to stay tuned on Thursday. Hank will be live on Hitting for the Cycle, our new baseball show, Thursday at 7 p.m. Thank you all very much for tuning in to Review and Preview tonight. Have a good night, everybody.